All right. Welcome to this special extra re-release edition of the Roller Ultra Barrel Vintage Baseball Podcast, where generally we speak to vintage baseball players from coast to coast, border to border, and we talk about 19th century baseball. We talk about the rules of which they played by back in the infancy of this bat and ball game that we adore so much. Uh, and then we talk about the travels of the current reincarnated players and clubs that exist uh, in our funny little niche that we have. Catching balls with bare hands. It's a good time. Anyway, people like to ask me. They say, barrel roller. <sighs> Why do you do this podcast? That's not what they ask me. They ask me more generally, what is my uh, favorite interview? That's the most popular question I get. And it's funny. I don't know if I have a favorite. I have interviews I think I did better than other ones, but I don't necessarily have favorites. There's definitely interviews that had more content Sometimes we get serious. Sometimes we get goofy. Uh, I like that I don't have a special formula that I follow. I just kind of go with the flow. But I want to take you back on this special re-release and give you some of the backstory to this interview. Uh, it was in November of 2021. I interviewed Bobby Valentine, former Major League player val uh, manager. Most of you know him as a manager. He was a a Hall of Fame capable player before he was a manager. Uh, that's for sure. And his, his playing career cut short by a broken leg, uh, climbing a chain link fence, I believe, in the outfield going after a fly ball. And then that's why he became a manager. And so I got contacted out of the blue uh, by his book company publicist, I guess it would be as he was releasing a book and they were offering me up time to interview him. Now, mind you, this is a year and a half ago. I mean, we're in season four now we're 186 episodes in and, uh, I have since had the opportunity to interview a couple more former major league baseball players. But at the time, I get. I was just a guy in a basement, and I kind of still am, but I I don't even know how they they got my contact info, but they did, and I wasn't going to turn it down, and I certainly wasn't going to say, do you know how small potatoes I am? So I jumped at the chance. They sent me the book. I read the book. By the way, uh, Bobby Valentine's book was called Valentine's Way, very good. You could tell that it wasn't just a ghostwriter writing that. I mean, it felt like you were sitting uh, in front of a campfire talking to him about baseball stories. Uh, I loved it. I'm not lying. And, uh, well, so I go into the Zoom the day of the interview and there is, at this point, there is no way I think I'm interviewing Bobby Valentine. I'm, I'm going through the motions like 
I think I even had to call in sick to work that day because uh, it was during the day. And and I I was pretty sure this interview was never going to happen. It was going to fall apart. I'm just a dude. I'm nobody. And uh, so I go in the Zoom, and I think I wait for about 20 minutes. After that 20 minutes, I start realizing that this this moment I was really hoping was going to happen isn't going to happen. There's There's been no contact. I hear nothing after 20 minutes. So this is what I do. I start interviewing Bobby Valentine in the Zoom without him there. Okay, so I start asking questions. I start going through my list and what questions would I ask and which ones sound dumb after I say it out loud. And, uh, you know, I'm not a professional interviewer. I don't have the education in the field of interviewing or sports broadcasting at all. Uh, so I just didn't want to sound stupid. That was it. And so I'm just asking questions to nothing, to nobody. And in the middle of, uh, me asking one of the questions, I believe I said, Hey Bobby, how do you feel about this? He showed up in the zoom and I was, I was shocked. I did not have time to prepare. I was in the middle of asking him a question when he wasn't there and now he's there and I did feel a little silly at the time, uh, practicing to interview Bobby Valentine and, sh- and have him show up. The first thing I noticed when I saw Bobby Valentine is he looked better than in that very moment on a Zoom than I've ever looked a day in my life. And it was disheartening to say the least, but <laughs> I interviewed him. I got through it. Uh, you're going, you are, do you want to hear the interview of somebody who's completely nervous? but knew the source material. I read the book. And uh, I did ask a couple of questions I shouldn't have as far as I didn't word them right. They were dumb questions. I get that. But I was interviewing Bobby Valentine, the, the Bobby Valentine. And uh, so it's definitely the most notable moment in the career of this podcast. And I just wanted to do a re-release, a full out re-release. And I just ask everybody that listens to this, listen, listen to me now, listen to my words, share this, share this, share this. It's very important because metrics that happen when I ask to interview people, In the future, they will look at metrics, and I would like this interview to hold a certain standard that I can show people, and then you never know who we could get on the show. So it is really important, and if you listen at the end of the episode, you'll hear Bobby Valentine compliment me and tell me why I'm a true professional. Untrue. I am not a true professional, but I'm glad that he felt that way. And uh, so definitely a highlight of my amateur podcasting career. I hope if you have listened to it, you listen to it again. And if you haven't listened to it, 
um, listen to it and then send it to your mom to listen to. Uh, it's Bobby Valentine. You got it. All right. I'm here with Bobby Valentine, uh, 10 year major league baseball player, 16 year major league manager, seven years managing in Japan. Uh, recently wrote a book coming out on November 30th called Valentine's Way. You wrote it with Peter Golenbach. Uh, Bobby, let's start with uh, why now? Why the book now? Well, a couple of years ago, Peter uh, contacted me and he said, hey, you know, your life's journey seems to be really interesting. And uh, why don't we document it? And I said, absolutely. Why don't we do- document it? So we, uh, we got about 50 years in and it was pretty cool. Uh, a couple of things. I uh, One, the book is great. I love the book. I love the way it reads. So it's very easy to read. It's like it, it, we're sitting next to you at a campfire and we're just talking baseball. And that's exactly how it reads. Is that how it was written? Did you just tell Peter all these stories and he just formatted it? Exactly. You know, I've never really met Peter in person. It was all over the phone. He would call, you know, once every four or five days. He'd give me a topic. I'd start to talk about it. And um, he would transcribe it. He'd put it into um, into words. And uh, we have a book. And it's, it is. It's just talking about what happened. So, once again, the book is Valentine's Way. I just saw it on Amazon. You can pre-order it on, on November 30th. Uh, when you were young and in high school, you were involved in so many activities, not just sports, but you were in clubs, you were acting in plays, you were doing uh, dancing, uh, and you had two girlfriends. <laughs> Why did you feel like you had to be that busy all the time? I mean, it seems like that's what you've done your whole life is just busy, busy, busy. Yeah, it's just part of the DNA. Um, you know, where there's time to fill. I tried to fill it and you know, all those cool things. My, my mom said, hey, you can't just be a jock. You have to do something more. So uh, she gave me the choice of singing or dancing lessons. After I sang a, a note, I realized it was dancing. And uh, I became a ballroom dancer as a kid. One of the greatest, greatest experiences of my life. Did any of that ballroom dancing help you with your sports? Oh, totally. You know, when, when you're dancing with a partner, um, you know, there's a routine you have to follow. So there's a lot of teamwork. Uh, there's a lot of rhythm. There's a lot of balance. And there's a lot of competition. You know, this is Tuxedo's Waldorf Astoria. Fans up in the balcony, you know, judges walking around with their pens, marking down papers. So there's a lot of pressure. And uh, it definitely helped me in, in sports. Uh, in the book, obviously, you cover all of the most polarizing moments of your career, which we all know uh, from the Mets and the and the one year at the Red Sox and all of that stuff. Uh, I'm not going to ask you about any of that because I want everybody to go. And I want them to get the book and read about it Thank in you. in more detail about those uh, those situations. When you were the fifth pack uh, fifth pick in the 1968 Major League Baseball draft, you were drafted by the Dodgers. It was done back then where you just got a phone call and they told you what happened. You didn't have a chance to really process. Was it every team except the Dodgers? Is that what you were hoping for? Well, you know, the Dodgers were my least favorite team. I lost the bet on the Dodgers. When I was 13 years old, they swept my favorite team, the Yankees. So, yeah, I wasn't expecting L.A. as far away from Stanford, Connecticut as you could get. And, uh, yeah, it's luckily 
because of Lasorda, it turned out well, and uh, I enjoyed being with the Dodgers. If you could go back in time to yourself when you started managing, you started managing at 35 years old, I believe. If you could go back yeah. and in a baseball uh, situation, tell yourself, don't spend as much time on this as a manager and spend more time on this. Could you give me a couple of examples of that? Yeah. You know, when I first managed, I also wanted to be the coach, you know, so I wanted to be a coach, the base running, coach, the outfielders, coach, the hitting, the bunning, the, the pitching, the relief pitching. And, um, you know, I wasn't good at the beginning of delegating things out. So if I had to do it all over again, I, I'd hire the best in breed, which I eventually did, and uh, let them do the coaching, and I would do the, you know, orchestrating, if you will, the directing of the players, the coaches, the front office, the fans, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Did you find it difficult to manage players that you once played with? Were you scared? <laughs> oh, I wasn't scared. I enjoyed, you know, I played with Charlie Huff, Tommy Pichorek, Nolan Ryan. I got to manage all those guys. Uh, when I was young, and they were all older than me uh, at the time, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, but it was a joy managing them because uh, they knew me and I knew them. And uh, the, the tough part was that I managed them at the end of their career. So, um, you know, my best friend, my roommate, Tom Pachorek, my first roommate ever, uh, he played his last game in the major leagues for me, and I had to release him. So, that, that was tough, that's for sure. Absolutely. Uh, the one year you managed in Boston, uh, there was a story that came out how you were late to a game. This, uh, That was it. That was the story that came out is you were late to a game. Do you think that journalists and the media kind of baited you because you are honest? You are honest to a fault, and, and you don't spread a lot of just – empty things about it and just keep rambling, rambling. You're very matter of fact with your honesty. Do you think that you got baited like by them media types? Well, you know, I think often they had the story written before the story happened. So um, they just filled in the blank and, and actually late for, for my showing up at the ballpark, not late for the game. Right. You know, we, we were having practice before the game. I picked up my son at the airport and got caught in the horrendous San Francisco traffic. What are you going to do? I called ahead. Everything was planned. Uh, yet they made it out to be late. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't like that one, especially because they put my son right in the middle of it. And he didn't need to be in the middle of that. That's for sure. Uh, in 2005, you won the Japanese championship with the, I'm going to pronounce this so wrong, but you're going to correct me, the, the Chiba Loto Marines. Perfect. Lote Marines. Yeah. Lote uh -huh. Marines. You challenged yeah. the Chicago White Sox to a series, which logistically wasn't going to happen. How do you think that series would have went with your <laughs> club against the White Sox that year? Best of seven. Well, you know, what I wanted to do is I wanted to meet him in Hawaii halfway. I wanted the proceeds to go to charity. I wanted it to be a world event, you know, which later became that world baseball classic the wbc um and you know that that year our team was really good and and the white Sox are really good too but i think we would have given them a run for the money um we we were a team of teams and uh we were firing all cylinders if 
If we met him halfway, I think it would have been a glorious event for baseball. The problem is if the U.S. team won, uh, lost, uh, then how could they ever claim it to be a world championship again? Right. Well, Yes, very much. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the Japanese fans. Uh, whenever we see a, a baseball movie that involves Japan, we always see the fans in the stands are very rabid, very loud. They, it's a very different scene. Is that is that an act, actual portrayal of what the the fans are like in Japan? Yeah, they're very attentive, and there's a cheering section uh, for each team. Uh, the entire right field stands for the home team. The entire left field stands for the uh, visiting team. And that's tens of thousands of people. Everyone else sits in the horseshoe and they watch the game and they might uh, sing along. But the cheering section actually has a song for every player. They sing it during every at-bat from the beginning of the bat, at-bat until the end of the at-bat. Uh, they, they stand. They have signs, they have, um, you know, bugles and horns and flags and the whole nine yards. They kind of encompass our football fandom uh, along with our baseball fandom and along with soccer fandom all into one in that sharing section in the outfield. Uh, you were actually, you mentioned this in your book, you were the first major league player to use a Mizuno glove. Uh, what went into that decision? Um, Mizuno was trying to break into the U.S. market uh, back in 77. Uh, they had a Winnebago with craftsmen inside of this Winnebago. They were going to go around to all the spring training camps and try to make gloves for players and, um, um, you know, break into the market. The problem was Joe Torrey's brother, Frank Torrey, uh, was the vice president of Rawlings, and Rawlings didn't want them in the marketplace. And so they weren't allowed on the proper you know, on the property of any of the spring training complexes. So, as um, as I was riding, um, let's see, as I was riding to spring training on my bike, I was living off uh, the proper area. Um, I passed this Winnebago. I looked inside. There are a bunch of baseball guys, Japanese guys, all making uh, gloves. And I stopped. I talked to them. The next day, I stopped again. I talked to them. They said, why don't uh, we make you a glove? I said, that would be spectacular. And uh, they handcrafted a glove, put my name on it. And, uh, yeah, I got to use it in the Major League game for the New York Mets, interestingly. And Joe Torrey was the manager of the team at the time, uh, which made it even crazier when you think about it uh once again the book is valentine's way my adventurous life and times by bobby valentine uh bobby there's so many people you come into contact with that would later become something at the time you meet them they're just your friends and people you come across but you come across and uh just to name a few uh the the future owner of kinkos there's a great story in there about a an animal house situation that happens while you're in college uh mike holmgren's name i believe was in the book and these are scattered all over the place so once again it's a great read uh you want to get this book bobby you've forgotten more about baseball than any of us know i, I feel uh, i feel like at, at this time 
But when I put out your name out there that I was going to get a chance to interview you, other than the the more famous things, the fact that you're the inventor of the wrap sandwich came up a lot. Is this is this uh, the internet getting the best of me, or do or are you the inventor of the wrap sandwich? Well, interesting. I, I guess it's creator, and um, you know when I went up to Boston. That was out on my Wikipedia page, put out there by manager of one of my restaurants. And uh, the Wall Street Journal decided to try to debunk it. And they spent a few months uh, going around and, and exploring menus from the 80s to see if anyone actually had a wrap sandwich on their menu in the 80s. It turned out they couldn't find a wrap. That's an American sandwich in a tortilla shell, just to clarify, not a burrito or a taco, right. but an American sandwich, right? Um, and so they, they couldn't find a, a restaurant that had one on the menu earlier than 1981. That's when we had ours on the uh, on the menu. I happened to be cooking that day that uh, the toaster was broken and I couldn't put the, the toast in the, to- the bread in the toaster. So I just took the ingredients and rolled it up in a tortilla shell and served it as is. And the rest is history. Absolutely. What was in it? What was the very first wrap sandwich? Club sandwich. It, it was a club sandwich rolled up. So uh, the order came in for a club sandwich. I couldn't make it traditionally. So I had the 10 inch tor- tortilla shells there in front of me and I put the mayonnaise and I put the, <laughs> you know, the ham and the turkey and the bacon and the lettuce and the tomato and uh, rolled it all up. I put a little American cheese on the top of the tortilla to keep the, um, seam from opening up at the time didn't quite have the roll down uh i put it underneath the salamander melted the cheese so then the cheese kept the the uh crease from opening and uh, it became a hit we served it as a club mex and then underneath it said a club sandwich mexican style rolled in a tortilla shell and uh hence the the wrap yes uh, also, an interesting story you tell in the book is about how you appeared on the dating game, which which you'll never see the video for, as as you explain in the book. Uh, you were on it a couple of times, and I wanted to ask you a question because I didn't. I wanted to make sure I got the story right. You were a contestant. You lost. The woman picked somebody else, but thought that the reason behind she was picking them was actually your answers to the questions so she should have been picking you is this correct yeah basically that's exactly correct uh, you know it's three guys behind the curtain one girl sitting out asking the questions. oh number one number two number three and so when the host said so why did you pick number three and she says oh because of this answer that he gave and he said oh, okay well you two are going to win a trip to laguna beach after the show, they came over to me and apologized. They said, oh, that was really your answer. We're going to call you back. And so there was a daytime version and a nighttime version of the dating game. I lost that daytime version, which was a trip from L.A. down to Laguna Beach, about 30 miles. And I won a trip on the nighttime version to the uh, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and the Hague. I didn't take the trip, but I won it. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a trip to Europe, and uh, I believe the woman ended, ended up going on the trip with her boyfriend. So, <laughs> uh, good for her. <laughs> yes, uh, Bobby. How many how many current locations are there of Bobby V's the uh, restaurant? 
Okay, there's uh, two. There's one in Windsor Locks, uh, Connecticut, one in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, they're part of a um, um, Connecticut uh, chain of OTB restaurants, uh, which is off-track bedding, and they serve food and bev. Uh, I, I sold my brand and have my brand on both of those restaurants that now have sports betting, interestingly enough, in them, and um, they're doing quite well. I wanted to ask you one uh, one question about your recent uh, mayoral race in Stamford, Connecticut, and, and that would be this. In the times where the country is so divided, it seems like we're you have you have to have a strong opinion about something. One way or another, you have to have it. That's the uh, appearance of things nowadays. You ran as an independent. You put yourself behind the eight ball right away. And uh, what went into that decision of running as an independent? As it turns out, it was an unaffiliated that I ran on, only because independent is actually a party. I wanted to be unaffiliated from all party structure, uh, and I wanted to be affiliated with all the people. You know, I just wanted to have it be a municipality election, Stanford, Connecticut, hometown. Let's, let's do things the right way and not have to have the party politics get in the way of, of what would be good governance governance. And, um, you know, another, it's going to be another book for sure, but it was a spectacular <laughs> six months of learning, uh, of an adventure. Uh, we, we got more votes than any non-Democrat ever got in the city of Stanford. And, uh, it, it was quite the learning experience, but we lost Caroline Simmons one, who is a, a spectacular, um, uh, candidate now will be mayor of Stanford, Connecticut, and, and hopefully she'll do a great job. Uh, in doing my research, I ran across a lot of positive feelings about you when you were the Sacred Heart Athletic uh, Department head. You left that position to run for this race. Uh, you thinking about going back? Well, I'll always be associated with Sacred Heart University. I did eight years of uh, service there, you know, where you know, we did great things. Our, our, our uh, athletic department went from, you know, maybe 700 to over 1,000. Uh, I passed the pon- baton to a wonderful deputy that worked with me for a couple of years, Judy Enrico, and uh, uh, she's doing a great job right now, and um, uh, my staff is doing a great job. So uh, I- I'll always be back. I don't think I'll take that position at the university, but if they need me, I tell them I'm like uh, Continental Breakfast when you check into a hotel. I'm there. If you want it, you don't have to take it. Uh, once again, the book is Valentine's Way, available on, on November 30th. It reads really well. I suggest this to everybody who's listening, and everybody who is listening is a baseball fan, so it's a no-brainer for us, really. Uh, Bobby, thank you so much for coming on the show Uh I know you have a lot of things going on. You are very busy. You're probably doing a thousand interviews. <laughs> You're going to be so tired of talking to the media uh, all the way up until your book. There is one last uh, thing I would like to do. Uh, I got 10 quick questions that just require quick answers to get to know you better. Oh boy. And not non-controversial. <laughs> your man. Here we go. Bobby Valentine, what was your first car? Oh, a 1969 Camaro, my favorite car ever. What was your favorite stadium to either play or coach in? 
You know, Wrigley uh, Field was spectacular. Uh, first time going there made made my day. Uh, it was spectacular. <laughs> if you could build the perfect hot dog for you, what is it? Wow, it has to have chili, and I think it has to have cheese. I, chopped onions, red onions preferably would probably be the mix. What was the first concert you ever went to? Whoa, that might have been Three Dog Night. <laughs> There's a reference and, I was And interestingly mixed. enough, it was in L.A., and the center fielder at the time was Willie Davis. He wore number three. He ran like a greyhound, and they called him the Three Dog, and uh, we went to a Three Dog Night concert together. Do you remember who you got your first hit off of? You know, I, uh, I always said it was Don Gullett, uh, but I guess it was Will... Uh, Mackinac. Okay. Uh, what is your preferred adult beverage? Uh, Stella in a nice Stella glass with a stem. You own a lot of sports memorabilia. What's your favorite piece? Oh, I have a uh, autographed um, Mickey Mantle photograph where he's whispering in my ear when I was 17 years old at Yankee Stadium. And it's my favorite. And that story is in the book, and you can find out what Mickey Mantle whispered into Bobby Valentine's ear. Uh, can you name me, in all of your managing, an underrated player that never got the the kudos they should have for how good they were? John Oliver. Um, I think he was spectacular at all facets of the game except for running. He was one of the slower runners I've ever had. But great batter, great fielder, great person, most underrated. And uh, last question, what's the best item on the menu at your restaurant? Wow, I I don't think you could, um, whoa. You know, at my old restaurant, it was always my mom's eggplant parmesan. We don't have that in the restaurant. So I'm I'm going to say um, you probably have to go with the salmon on the dinner entry. It's really good. Uh, you can't go wrong with salmon. Uh, Bobby, hey, uh, one last question before I let you out of here. When you got injured, that story also obviously in the book uh, that really played a part in uh, your career ending at some point. Have you recovered 100% from that leg injury? Oh, no. You know, my uh, my leg's still crooked. My ankle doesn't bend. You know, it's... Um, it's a balancing act, and, and I've learned to do it over the last 50 years. But um, I guess I've recovered, but it's, it's not a normal leg, that's for sure. Bobby, thank you for being on the show. Uh, when you go through the book, you read about your philanthropy. It's amazing. Uh, you've led an incredible life. I, you were one of the more polarizing figures when I was growing up, so I knew all the main stuff about you. I didn't know any of the other stuff about you. It was a great to have you on the show and it was great to uh to be able to talk to you about some things uh thank you so much for being here well the only thing i could say you're a pro's pro great interview and i i appreciate being with you thank you much i appreciate that bobby take care of yourself great job thank you